Hello beautiful souls, this is your host Chris Cypher, and you are listening to Deep Chat with Chris Cypher. Alan Watts, the book on the taboo against knowing who you are. Preface, this book explores an unrecognized but mighty taboo. Our tacit conspiracy to ignore who or what we really are. Briefly, the thesis is that the prevalent sensation of oneself as a separate ego enclosed in a bag of skin is a hallucination which accords neither with Western science nor with the experimental philosophy religions of the East. In particular, the central and germinal Vedanta philosophy of Hinduism. This hallucination underlies the misuse of technology for the violent subjugation of man's natural environment and, consequently, its eventual destruction. We are therefore in urgent need of a sense of our own existence, <clears throat> which is in accord with the physical facts and which overcomes our feeling of alienation from the universe. For this purpose, I have drawn on the insights of the Vedanta, stating them, however, in a completely modern and western style, so that this volume makes no attempts to be a textbook or an introduction to Vedanta in the ordinary sense. It is rather a cross-fertilization of Western science and Eastern intuition. Particular thanks are due to my wife, Mary Jane, for her careful editorial work and her comments on the manuscript. Gratitude is also due to Bollington Foundation for its support of a project which included the writing of this book Sausalito, California, Alan Watts, January 1966. Chapter 1 Inside Information Just what should a young man or woman know in order to be in the know? Is there, in other words, some inside information, some special taboo, some real lockdown on life and existence? that most parents and teachers either don't know or won't tell. In Japan, it was once customary to give young people about to be married a pillow book. This is a small volume of woodblock prints, often colored, showing all the details of sexual intercourse. It wasn't just that, as the Chinese say, one picture is worth 10,000 words. It was also that it spared parents the embarrassment of explaining these intimate matters face to face. But today in the West, you can get such information at any newsstand. Sex is no longer a serious taboo. Teenagers sometimes know more about it than adults. But if sex is no longer the big taboo, what is it? For there's always something taboo, something repressed, unadmitted, or just glimpsed quickly 
out of the corner of one's eye because a direct look is too unsettling. Taboos lie within taboos, like the skins of an onion. What then would be the book which fathers might slip their sons and mothers to their daughters without ever admitting it openly? <clears throat> in some circles, there is a strong taboo on religion. Even in circles where people go to church or read the Bible, here religion is one's own private business. It is bad form or uncool to talk or argue about it, and very bad indeed to make a show of piety. Yet, when you get in on the inside of almost any standard brand religion, you wonder on what on earth the hush is about. Surely the book I have in mind wouldn't be the Bible, the good book, that fascinating anthology of ancient wisdom, history, and fable, which has for so long treated as a sacred cow that it might be locked up for a century or two so that men could hear it again with clean ears. <clears throat> there are indeed secrets in the Bible and some very submersive ones, subversive ones, but they are also muffled up in complications and archaic symbols and ways of thinking that Christianity has become incredibly difficult to explain to a modern person. That is, unless you are content to water it down to being good and trying to imitate Jesus, but no one ever explains just how to do that. To do it, you must have a particular power from God known as grace. But all that we really know about grace is that some get it and some don't. <clears throat> the standard brand religions, whether Jewish, Christian, Mohammedan, Hindu, or Buddhist, are as now practiced like exhausted minds. Very hard to dig. With some exceptions not too easily found, their idea about man and the world, their imagery, their rights, and the notions of good life doesn't seem to fit in with the universe as we know it or with the human world that is really changing so rapidly that much of what one learns in school is already obsolete on graduation day. The book I'm thinking about would not be religious in the usual sense, but it would have to discuss many things with which religions have been concerned the universe and the man's place in it, the mysterious center of experience which we call I, myself, <clears throat> the problems of life and love, pain and death, the whole question of whether existence has meaning in any sense of the word. For there's a growing apprehension that existence is a rat race in a trap. <clears throat> Living organisms, including people, are merely tubes which put things in at one end and let them out at the other, which keeps them doing it and in the long run wears them out. So to keep the farce going, the tubes find ways of making new tubes, which also put things 
in at one end of them and let them out at the other. At the input end, they can develop galangia of nerves called brains with eyes and ears so that they more easily scrounge around things to swallow. As and when they get enough to eat, they use up their surplus energy by wiggling in complicated matters, <clears throat> making all sorts of noises by blowing air in and out of the input hole and gathering together in groups to fight with other groups. In times, the tubes grow such an abundance of attached appliances that they are hardly recognizable as mere tubes. And they manage to do this in a staggering variety of forms. There is a vague rule not to eat tubes of your own form. But in general, there is serious competition as to who is going to be at the top type of tube. <clears throat> All this seems marvelously futile. And yet, when you begin to think about it, it begins to be more marvelous than futile. Indeed, it seems extremely odd. It is a special kind of enlightenment to have this feeling that the usual, the way things normally are, is odd, uncanny, and highly improbable. G.K. Chesterton once said that it is one thing to be amused at a gorgon or a griffin, creatures which do not exist, but it is quite another and much higher thing to be amazed at a rhinoceros or a giraffe. Creatures would do exist and look as if they don't. This feeling of universal oddity includes a basic and intense wondering about the sense of things. Why of all possible worlds, this colossal and apparently unnecessarily multitude of galaxies in a mysteriously curved shape and time continuum, these myriads of a differing tube species playing frantic games of one-upmanship, these numberless ways of doing it, from the elegant architecture of the snow crystal or the diatom of a startling magnificence of Liebert or the peacock. <clears throat> Ludwig Wittgenstein and other modern logical philosophers have tried to suppress this question by saying that it has no meaning and ought not to be asked. Most philosophical problems are to be solved by getting rid of them, by coming to a point where you see that such questions as why this universe are a kind of intellectual neuroses and misuse of the words, and that question sounds sensible but it's actually as meaningless as asking, where is the universe? When the only things that are anywhere must be inside somewhere in the universe. The task of philosophy is to cure people of such nonsense. Wittgenstein, as we shall see, had a point there. <clears throat> Nevertheless, Wonder is not a disease. Wonder and its expression in poetry and the arts are among the most important things which seem to distinguish men from other animals and intelligent and sensitive people from morons.
Is there then some kind of lowdown on this astounding scheme of things? Something that never really gets out through the usual channels? For the answer, hysteric religions and philosophies? There is. It has been said again and again, but in such a fashion that we today, in this popular, particular civilization, do not hear it. We do not realize that it is utterly subversive, not so much in the political and moral sense, as in that turns our ordinary view of things, our common sense inside out and upside down. It may, of course, have political and moral consequences, but as yet we have no clear idea of what they may be. Hitherto, the inner revolution of the mind has been confirmed to rather isolated individuals. It has never, to my knowledge, been widely characteristic of communities or societies. It has been thought too dangerous for that, hence the taboo. But the world is an extremely dangerous situation, and serious diseases often require risk of a dangerous cure like the Pasteur serum for rabies. It is not that we may simply blow up the planet with nuclear bombs, strangle ourselves with overpopulation, destroy our natural resources through poor conservation, or ruin the soil and its products with improperly understood chemicals and pesticides. Beyond all these is the possibility that civilization may be a huge technological success, but through the methods that most people will find baffling, frightening, and disorienting because for one reason alone, the methods will keep changing. It may be like playing a game in which the rules are constantly changed without ever being made clear. A game from which one cannot withdraw without suicide. And in which one can never return to an older form of the game. But the problem of man and techniques is almost always stated in the wrong way. It is said that humanity has evolved one-sidedly, growing in technical power without any comparable growth in moral integrity, or, as some would prefer to say, without comparable progress in education and rational thinking. Yet the problem is more basic. The root of the matter is the way in which we feel and conceive ourselves as human beings, our sensation of being alive, of individual existence and in in the identity. We suffer from a hallucination, from a false and distorted sensation of our own existence as living organisms. Most of us have the sensation that I myself is a separate center of feeling and action, living inside and bounded by the physical body. A center which confronts an external world of people and things making contact through the senses with the universe both alien and strange. 
Everyday figures of speech reflect this illusion I came into this world. You must face reality, the conquest of nature. This feeling of being lonely and temporary visitors in the universe is in flat contradiction to everything we know about man and all other living organisms in the sciences. We do not come into this world, we come out of it. As leaves from a tree, as the ocean waves the universe peoples. Every individual is an expression of the whole realm of nature, a unique action of the total universe. This fact is rarely, if ever, experienced by most individuals, even those who know it to be true in theory do not sense or feel it, but continue to be aware of themselves as isolated egos inside of bags of skin. The first result of this illusion is that our attitude to the world outside us is largely hostile. We are forever conquering nature, space, mountains, deserts, bacteria, and excellence, insects. Instead of learning to cooperate with them in harmonious order, in America, the great symbols of this conquest are the bulldozer and the rocket. The instrument that batters the hills into flat tracks for little boxes made of ticky-tacky and the great phallic projectile that blasts into the sky. Nonetheless, we have fine architects who know how to fit houses in the hills without running the landscape, and astronomers who know that the Earth is already way out in space, and our first need for exploring the other worlds is sensitive electronic instruments, which, like our eyes, will bring the most distant objects in our own brains. The hostile attitude of conquering nature ignores the basic interdependence of all things and events. That the world beyond the skin is actually an extension of our own bodies and will end in destroying the very environment from which we emerge and upon which our whole life depends. The second result of feeling that we separate minds in an alien and mostly stupid universe is that we have no common sense, no way of making sense of the world upon which we are agreed in common. It's just my opinion against yours, and therefore the most aggressive and violent, and thus insensitive, propagandist makes the decisions. A model of conflicting opinions united by force of propaganda is the worst possible source of control for powerful technology. It might seem then that our need is for some genius to invent a new religion, philosophy of life, and view of the world that is implausible and generally acceptable. For the late 20th century, and through whichever individual can feel that the world as a whole and his own life in particular have meaning, this, as history has shown repeatedly, is not enough. Religions are diversive and quarrelsome. They are a form of one-upmanship, 
because they depend on separating the saved from the damned, the true believers from the heretics, the in-group from the out-group. Even religious liberals play the game of we're more tolerant than you. Furthermore, as systems of doctrine, symbolism, and behavior, religion hardened in the institutions, and that must command loyalty be defended and kept pure. Because all beliefs is fervent hope. And that's a cover-up for doubt and uncertainty. Religions must make converts. The more people who agree with us, the less nagging insecurity about our position. In the end, one is committed to being a Christian or Buddhist, come what in the form of new knowledge new and indigestible ideas have to be wangled into religious tradition, however inconsistent with its original doctrine, so that the believer can still take his stand and assert, I, first and foremost, a follower of Christ Muhammad Buddha or whomever, a revocable commitment to any religion is not only intellectual suicide, it is positive unfaith because it closes the mind to any new vision of the world. Faith is, above all, openness, an act of trust in the unknown. An ardent Jehovah's Witnesses once tried to convince me that if there were a God of love, he would certainly provide mankind with a reliable and infallible textbook for the guidance of conduct. I replied that no considerate God would destroy the human mind by making it so rigid and unadaptable as to depend upon one book, the Bible, for all the answers. For the use of words, and thus of a book, it is to point beyond themselves to a world of life and experience that is not mere words or even ideas. Just as money is not real consumable wealth, books are not life. To idolize scripture is like eating paper currency. Therefore, the book that I would like to slip to my children would itself be slippery. It would slip them into a new domain, not of ideas alone, but of experience and feeling. It would be a temporary medicine, not a diet. A point of departure, not a perpetual point of reference. They would read it and be done with it. For it were well and clearly written, they would not have to go back to it again and again for hidden meanings or for clarification of obscure doctrines. We do not need a new religion or a new Bible. We need a new experience, a new feeling of what it is to be I, the lowdown, which is, of course, the secret and profound view on life that is our normal sensation of self is a hoax, or at best, a temporary role that we are playing or have been conned into playing with our own tacit consent, just as every hypnotized person is basically willing to be hypnotized. 
The most strongly enforced of all known taboos is the taboo against knowing who you are or what you really are behind the mask of your apparently separate, independent, and isolated ego. I am not thinking of frauds, barbarosis, id, or unconscious as the actual reality behind the facade of personality. Freud, as we shall see, was under the influence of a 19th century fashion called reductionalism. A curious need to put down human culture and intelligence by calling it flunky, byproduct of blind and irrational forces. They worked very hard to prove that grapes can grow on thorn bushes. As it is so often the way, what we have suppressed and overlooked is something strangely obvious. The difficulty is that it is so obvious and basic that one can hardly find the words for it. The Germans call it a Hinkerdanke, an apprehension lying tacility in the back of our minds, which we cannot easily admit, even to ourselves. The sensation of I, as a lonely and isolated center of being, is so powerful and commonsensical and so fundamental to our modes of speech and thought, to our laws and social institutions, that we cannot experience selfhood except as something superficial in the scheme of the universe. I seem to be brief light that flashes but once in all the eons of time, a rare, complicated, and all too delicate organism on the fringe of biological evolution where the wave of life bursts into an individual sparkling and multi-colored drop that gleam for a moment only to vanish forever. Under such conditioning, it seems impossible and even absurd to realize that myself does not reside in the drop alone, but in the whole surge of energy, which ranges from the galaxies to the nuclear fields in my body. At this level of existence, I am immeasurably old, my forms are infinite, and their comings and goings are simply the pulses or vibration of a single and eternal flow of energy. The difficulty in realizing this is to be so that conceptual thinking cannot grasp it. It is as if the eyes were trying to look at themselves directly, or as if one was trying to describe the color of a mirror in terms of the colors reflected in the mirror. Just as sight is something more than all the things seen, the foundation or ground of our existence and our awareness cannot be understood in terms of things that are known. We are forced, therefore, to go speak of it through myth, that is, through special metaphors, analogies, and images which say what it is like as distinct from what it is. At one extreme of its meaning, myth is fable, falsehood, or suspension. But at another, myth 
is a useful and fruitful image by which we make sense of life in somewhat the same way that we can explain electrical forces by comparing them to the behavior of water to air. Yet myth, in this second sense, is not to be taken literally, just as electricity is not to be confused with air or water. Thus, in using myth, one must take care not to confuse image with fact, which would be like climbing up the signpost instead of following the road. Myth, then, is the form in which I try to answer when children ask me those fundamental metaphysical questions which come so readily to their minds. Where did the world come from? Why did God make the world? Where was I before I was born? Where did people go when they die? Again and again, I found they seemed to be satisfied with a simple and very ancient story, which goes something like this. There was never a time when the world began because it goes round and round like a circle. And there is no place on a circle where it begins. Look at my watch. Which time? which tells the time, it goes round and round, and so the world repeats itself again and again. But just as the hour hand of the watch goes up to twelve, and down to six too, there is day and night, waking and sleeping, living and dying, summer and winter. You can't have any of these things without the other, because you simply wouldn't be able to know what black is unless you've seen it side by side with white or white and left side by side with black. In the same way, there are times when the world is and times when the world isn't. For if the world went on and on without rest forever and ever, it would get horribly tired of itself. It comes and goes. Now you see it, now you don't. So because it doesn't get tired of itself, it always comes back again after it disappears it's like your breath. It goes in and out, in and out. If you try to hold it in all the time, you feel terrible. It's also like a game of hide and seek because it's always fun to find new ways of hiding and to seek for someone who doesn't always hide in the same place. God also likes to play hide and seek, but because there's nothing outside God, he has no one but himself to play with. But he gets over this difficulty by pretending that he is not himself. This is his way of hiding from himself. He pretends that he is you and I and all the people in the world, all the animals, all the plants, all the rocks, all the stars. In this way, he has strange and wonderful adventures, some of which are terrible and frightening. But these are just like bad dreams, for when he wakes up, they would disappear. Now, when God plays hide-and-seek and pretends that he is you and I, he does it so well that it takes him a long time to remember where and how he hid himself. But that's the whole fun of it. Just what he wanted to do. He doesn't want to find himself too quickly, for that would spoil the game. That is why it's so difficult for you and me to find out that we are God in disguise pretending not to be himself. But when the game has gone on long enough, all of us will wake up, stop pretending, and remember that we are all one single self. And God, 
whose all there is, and who lives forever and ever. Of course you must remember that God isn't shaped like a person. People have skins, and there's always something inside, outside our skins. If there weren't, we wouldn't know the difference between what is inside and outside our bodies. But God has no but God has no skin and no shape because there isn't any outside of him. With a sufficiently intelligent child, I illustrate this with a Mobius strip, a ring of paper tape twisted outside in such a way that it only has one side and one edge. The inside and the outside of God are the same. And though I've been talking about God as he and not she, God isn't man or woman. God didn't say it because we usually say it for things that aren't alive. God is the self of the world. But you can't see God for the same reason that without a mirror, you can't see your own eyes, and you can't bite your own teeth or look what's inside your head. Yourself is that cleverly hidden because it is God hiding. You may ask why God sometimes hides in the form of horrible people or pretends to be people who suffer great disease and pain. Remember first that he isn't really doing this to anyone but himself. Remember too that in almost all stories you enjoy, there have to be bad people as well as good people for the thrill of the tale is to find out how the good people will get better of the bad. It's the same as when we play cards. At the beginning of the game, we shuffle them into a mess, which is like the bad things in the world. But the point of the game is to put the mess into good order. And the one who does it best is the winner. Then we shuffle the cards once more and play again. And so it goes with the world. This story, obviously mythical in form, is not given as a scientific description of the way things are, based on the analogy of games and the drama. And using that much worn out word God for the player, the story claims life only to be the way things are. I use it just as astronomers use the image of inflating a black balloon with white spots on it for galaxies to explain the expanding universe. 
but to most children and many adults, the myth is at once intelligible, simple, and fascinating. By contrast, so many other mythical explanations of the world are crude, torturous, and unintelligible. But many people think that believing in the intelligible propositions and the symbols of their religions is a test of their faith. I believe, said Tertullian of Christianity, because it is absurd. People who think for themselves do not accept ideas on this kind of authority. They don't feel commanded to believe in miracles or strange authority. They don't feel commanded to believe in miracles or strange doctrines, as Abraham felt commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac, as T. George Harris puts it. The social hierarchies of the past, where some boss above you always punished any error-conditioned men to feel a chain of harsh authority reaching all the way up there. We don't feel this bond in today's egalitarian freedom. We don't even have, since Dr. Spock, many Jehovah-like fathers in the community, family. So the average unconscious no longer learns to seek forgiveness from a wrathful God above. But he continues, Our generation knows a cold hell, solitary confinement in this life, without a God to damn or serve it. Until man figures out the traps and hunts, the ultimate ground of being, he has no reason at all for his existence. Empty, finite, he knows only that he will soon die, since this life has no meaning and he sees no future. He is not really a person but a victim of self-extinction. The ultimate ground of being, as Paul Tolucci's decontaminated term for God, and would also do for the self of the world, as I put it in my story for children. But the secret, which my story slips over to the child, is that the ultimate ground of being is you, not, of course, the everyday you, which the ground is assuring or pretending to be, but the inmost self, which escapes inspection because it's always the inspector. This, then, is the taboos of taboos. You're it. Yet in our culture, this is a touchstone of insanity, the blackest of blasphemies, the wildest of delusions. This, we believe, is the ultimate megalomania, an inflation of the ego to complete absurdity. For though we cultivate the ego with one hand, we knock it down with the other. From generation to generation, we kick the stuffing out of our 
children to teach them how to know their place and behave, think, and feel with proper modesty as befits one little ego among many. As my mother used to say, you're not the only pebble on the beach. Anyone in his right mind who believes that he is God should be crucified or burn at the stake. So now we take the more charitable view that no one in his right mind could believe such nonsense. Only a poor idiot could conceive himself as omnipotent ruler of the world and expect everyone to fall down and worship. But this is because we think of God as the king of the universe, the absolute technocrat who personally and consciously controls every detail of his cosmos and that is not the kind of God in my story. In fact, it isn't my story at all. For any student of history of religions will know that it comes from ancient India and is the mythical way of explaining the Vedanta philosophy. It is the teaching of the Upanishads, a collection of dialogues, stories, and poems, some of which go back to at least 800 D BC. BC. Sophisticated Hindus do not think of God as special and separate. Superperson who rules the world from above like a monarch, their God is underneath rather than above everything and as he or it plays from outside of the world one might say that if religion is the opium of the people the Hindus have the inside dope what is more no Hindu can realize that he is God in disguise without seeing at the same time that this is true of everyone and everything in the Vedanta philosophy, nothing exists except God. There seem to be other things than God, but only because he is dreaming them up or making them his disguises to play hide-and-seek with himself. The universe, seemingly separate things, is therefore real only for a while, not eternally real. For it comes and goes as the self hides and seeks itself. But Vedanta is more than the idea or the belief that this is so. It is essentially and above all the experience. The immediate knowledge of its being. And for this reason such a complete subversion of our ordinary way of seeing things. It turns the world inside out and outside in. Likewise, a saying attributed to Jesus runs, when you make the two one and you make the inner as the outer and the outer as the inner and the above as the below, you shall enter the kingdom. I am the light that is above them all I am the all. The all came forth from me, and the all attained to me. Cleave 
a piece of wood and I am there. Lift up stones and you will find me there. Today, the Vedanta disciples comes down to us after centuries of involvement with all the forms, attitude, and symbols of Hindu culture in its flowering and slow demise over nearly 2,800 years, sorely wounded by Islamic fanaticism and corrupted by British Puritanism. As one often set forth, Vedanta rings no bell in the East and the West and attracts mostly the fastidiously spiritual and defenious kind of people for whom incarnation in a physical body is just too disgusting to be born. But it is possible to state its essentials in a present-day idiom, and when this is done without exotic trappings, Sanskrit terminology and excessive postures of spirituality, the message is not only clear to people with no special interest in Oriental religion, as it is also the very jolt that we need to kick ourselves out of our isolated sensation of self. But this must not be confused with our usual ideas of the practice of unselfishness, which is the effort to identify with others and their needs while still under the strong illusion of being no more than a bag of skin-contained ego. Such unselfishness is apt to be highly refined egotism comparable to the in-group which plays the game of we're more taller than you. The Vedanta is not originally moralistic. It did not urge upon the uh, to people without sharing their real motivations or to ape motivations without sharing knowledge which sparks them. For this reason... The book I would pass to my children will contain no sermons, no shoulds or oughts. Genuine love comes from knowledge, not from a sense of duty or guilt. How would you like to be an invalid mother with a daughter who can't marry because she feels ought to look after you and therefore hates you? My wish would be to tell not how things ought to be, but teach how they are and how and why we ignore them as we are. You cannot teach an ego to be anything but egotistic. Even though egos have the subtlest ways of pretending to be reformed, the basic thing is therefore to dispel by experiment and experience the illusion of oneself as a separate ego. The consequences may not be behavior along the lines of conventional morality. (laughs) 
it may well be as the squares said of Jesus. Look at him, a glutton and a drinker, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Furthermore, on seeing through the illusion of the eagle, it is impossible to think of oneself as better than or superior to others for having done so. In every direction, there's just oneself playing its myriad of games of hide-and-seek. Birds are not better than the eggs from which they have broken. Indeed, it could be said that a bird is one egg's way of becoming other eggs. Egg is ego. The bird has liberated itself. There is a Hindu myth of self as a divine swan which laid the egg which the world was hatched. Thus, I am not even saying that you ought to break out of your shell. Sometime, somehow, you, the real you, would do it anyhow. But it is not impossible that the play of the self will be to remain unawakened in most of his human disguises, and so to bring the drama on the life to its close into a vast explosion. Another Hindu myth says as time goes on, life in the world gets worse and worse until the last destructive aspect of the self, the god Shiva, dances the terrible dance which consumes everything in fire. There follows, says a myth, 4,032,000 years of total peace during which the self is just itself and is not play hide. And then the game begins again, starting off as a universe of perfect splendor, which begins to deteriorate after 1,728,000 years. And every round of the game is so designed that the forces of darkness present themselves for only one-third of the time, enjoying at the end a brief but quite illusionary triumph. Today, we calculate the life of the planet alone to be much vaster period, but all ancient civilizations, the Hindus had the most imaginative visions of cosmic times, yet remember this story of cycles of the world's appearance and disappearance is myth, not science. Parable rather than prophecy is the way of illustrating the idea that the universe is like a game of hide-and-seek. If, then, I am not saying that you ought to awaken from the eagle illusion and help save the world from disaster, why the book? Why not sit back and let things take its course? Simply that it is part of things taking their course that I write. As a human being, it is just my nature to enjoy and share philosophy. I did this in the same way that the birds are eagles and some doves, some flowers, lilies, and some roses, I realize, too, the less I preach, the more likely I am to be heard. End of chapter one.